Hi, everyone. It's Carter. We are really excited about today's discussion with Brian Bonner, formerly of the Kiev Post, about events in the Ukraine. We wanted, though, to offer a note about the timing of our conversation with Brian, which actually happened in early December. Things are changing every day in the Ukraine, and we wanted to make sure that you understood the context of when this discussion took place. Unfortunately, the timing of the release of this episode was delayed due to some pandemic-related issues. We are all doing well and are happy now to be able to bring you this episode of The Key and the Kite with Brian Bonner. Adobe, Happy New Year! In the Ukraine. You are on the road. I am. It's, it's a- been an interesting holiday season. I spent Christmas in Lagos, Nigeria. And as of Christmas Eve, there was no plan to be anywhere but Lagos, Nigeria. But on the 27th, we decided on a whim to come to the U.S. and uh, ring in the new year with my daughters. Well, welcome back to the United States. Thank you. We had a, a holiday break that was driven by the kids. My daughter is a bas- high school basketball player, and we had to work all of our holidays around her basketball practice schedule. And so she and I went down to Florida to visit my in-laws um, early in the break. And then uh, my wife and son came down. We crossed over with them by a couple of days uh, around Christmas. And then uh, my daughter and I came back to Colorado so she could go to basketball practice. My son and wife stayed in Florida to have an extended visit with with her family and friends in Florida. We're all back together here in uh, Centennial, Colorado for the new year and, and to kick off the new year. It's been a fun time. Awesome. What I didn't mention, and I, I think it's worth mentioning because of the sort of podcast you and I do, is that for the first time in a very long time, all three of my siblings, quite by accident, all ended up in the Washington, D.C. area. And we had 14 first cousins um, spending New Year's together. Which wow. Was, it was quite an amazing thing. Completely unplanned. Um, it just sort of happened that way. But really phenomenal. As you know, I'm very close to my siblings. Any opportunity we get to be in the same space, we we, we take it. So it was a really special New Year's. That's fantastic. That I'm, I'm very happy for you. Well, welcome back to the podcast and, and welcome, everybody. We had a little bit of an extended holiday break uh, as all of this was happening, but we're happy to be back after it. And we are excited to get to talk today with Brian Bonner, uh, who spent more than a decade at the Kiev Post as the editor and then the executive director. And and we wanted to talk to Brian because in the news headlines today, we were hearing a lot about a possible invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. And so I really wanted to reach out to Brian and get a sense of what life is like on the ground in Kiev, what people are thinking about in the Ukraine, and get his perspective and we had a great conversation. I didn't know who Brian was, even though you worked at the campaign. Um, so I did a bit of research and um, listening to your conversation was actually a really interesting exercise for me um, because most people I know in the U.S. have no idea what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, so we are sort of political animals, you and I um, we come from very political families and backgrounds. So this I mean, this is this is big news for us. But the great majority of people I've been spending time with are clueless as to what's happening in Ukraine. So this was a really fascinating one for, for me to listen to. Um, quite interesting insight from Brian. Yeah, I thought it was a great conversation and it actually did not go where I thought it was going to go. So let's uh, let's talk to Brian Bonner. 
Welcome to the Key and the Kite podcast. I'm Adobe Oniwinde, and as we record this episode, I'm in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and Carter is in Denver, Colorado. Today, we have a conversation with Brian Bonner, who spent more than a decade as the chief editor of the Kiev Post, where he also served for a number of years as the executive director. He spent most of his career at the St. Paul Pioneer Press in Minnesota, where he was a staff writer, foreign correspondent, and a signing editor. He has served as an election expert with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and like Carter and I, worked for a time at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in Washington, D.C. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Let's start by just putting Ukraine on the map for people who may not know kind of where it is. Where Where is Ukraine? Well, too close to Russia, right? Now. <laughs> but it, it is, uh, oh, man, I think we got seven states, uh, seven countries around us. Uh, Black has two seas. Black Sea is OC. Uh, Eastern Europe. I know people always say France size, but it is it is France is Ukraine size. So it's a big country, uh, 40 million people. And uh, unfortunately, a sad history of uh different rulers, uh, foreign rulers, different makeups of its territory, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Russian domination was the, was the, was the big thing. So, but it's, uh, it can be a great place to live. And unfortunately, people don't know a lot about it. Yeah. I was curious, I, I was reading a little bit about Ukraine, and one of the things that I read was that the border with Russia is actually longer than the U.S.-Mexico border, just to put that in context. So it's a significant chunk of land that we're talking about. It is. It is. I mean, I, I could get to, I'd have to get you the quote you the square miles. It's a, a square miles, but I'm sure you can look that up. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a monstrous country. 7% of it now, unfortunately, is controlled by the Kremlin after invasions. Parts of the eastern Donbass, we call it. And of course, the Crimean Peninsula. Let's talk about that a little bit because Ukraine does have a long history uh, with the Soviets back going back to the early 1900s uh, and kind of Soviet domination and influence through most of the 20th century. Yeah, Ukraine's history is unfortunate. I mean, they've had Polish dominance, Austrian, Hungarian dominance, and you go back far, Lithuanian, uh, Swedish, uh, Tatar, but the biggest one was Russia. So part of the Russian Empire during Tsarist times, Obviously, uh, in the breakup of, well, during the Russian Revolution, 1917, there was a protracted war in which Ukrainians tried to assert national independence and fought for it. It failed. By 1922, it was absorbed by the Soviet Empire, or, you know, it was part of the Soviet Union. And in the pecking order of Soviet republics, it was always number two, I guess, or, you know, number one after Russia. So in some ways, Ukrainians had it better under the Soviet Union, but most Ukrainians will tell you that it was an artificial construction of the Soviet Union. And 
as bad as you know it looks now for Ukraine, this is a country that's very used to, unfortunately, uh, living through trauma. I mean, it's you know it's people who suffered the Holodomor. We're up to seven million people were forcibly starved to death, starved to submission. Holocaust here, um, living through World War II, completely occupied by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union at you know, different intervals. And even after the war, they fought into the 50s to uh, Ukrainian nationalists to, again, reassert independence as, as a nation, as a people. So it's it's been very difficult um, throughout, unfortunately, throughout Ukrainian history. Yeah, and then we come into more of the present day and the last eight to ten years. And Ukraine, when the when the Soviet Union broke up in the early nineties, uh, Ukraine got independence. And then in the last eight to ten years, we've really seen Russia try to reassert its dominance in Ukraine. If we go back to 2013, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened in Ukraine in 2013 um, with with the EU and with Russia and and how that may inform and set the stage for what's happening today? Oh, indeed. Well, I mean, first first up, if you don't learn anything uh, in depth or don't have the time to, Russia, particularly Vladimir Putin, but also many Russians, don't consider... Ukraine to be an independent sovereign nation, considered to be a territory of Russia. And there's the fundamental problem. In 2013, Kremlin-backed president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, made the people, well, prompted the people to rise up in a revolution that lasted 100 days, ended with more than 100 people killed. But eventually he fled uh to russia where he is today living in exile on february 22nd 2014. we were here the Kipos was here for the whole revolution the start of the war but yanukovych was a kleptocrat he was completely corrupt and com- completely beholden to kremlin interests he signed a 50-year lease uh for the russian naval base in in crimea so anchoring russia's claim that Crimea is is theirs or, or they would not be dislodged from Crimea. But what really happened to trigger the revolution is that at the last moment, Yanukovych, the president then, turned away and refused to sign a European Union free trade agreement and political association agreement. And this immediately sent people out onto the streets because by and far the the vast majority of ukrainians want this to be a normal western country with the rule of law economic opportunity and everything else that a lot of us unfortunately take for granted and what we always have to fight for when that didn't happen uh it uh people rose up and 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 uh, Yanukovych was frightened and 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 left, and uh, and that's how that story ended. And then in 2014, Russia uh, moved into Crimea and, and annexed Crimea, right? The, the invasion was a pure payback for the revolution. You have a revolution, 
you're going to suffer the consequences. You overthrow the Kremlin-backed president, you're going to suffer the consequences. It was a walk in the park for the Kremlin. The defense, Ukraine had no defenses. It had 6,000 combat-ready troops, no ammunition, no practice. They had actually done joint maneuvers with the Russians. So the Russians knew very well what the lack of capabilities are. So they just waltzed into Crimea, where actually it's a region where there is high pro-Russian sentiment, uh, not decisive by any means at all, but it existed. And they also tried to instigate uprisings throughout Ukraine. They never took hold in, in Eastern regions like Kharkiv and Odessa, but they did take hold over parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. So it was a very easy thing. And it looked like, I mean, you know, in the early days we thought, oh my God, they're, they're gonna be in Kiev in two days. Now, militarily, they could do that. They could crush the Ukrainian's army. But then what would be the point? I mean, they would have to be occupiers in a nation of 40 million people, large European landmass in which they're, you know, which would be hostile to their, their presence. So eventually after a lot of bloody back and forth, the war has settled into the stalemate that we have now. And let's talk about what's happening today because we, we're hearing more and more about Ukraine and the news here in the United States and what's Russia up to and what's happening on that Eastern border. The skirmishes come and go, but basically no, not much territory has changed hands. And, and the Russian controlled area has emptied out in population. But what's happening and, and you know, the U.S. intelligence has been very good and very public about this is that periodically uh, Putin masses huge troops on the border. Um, the first time he did it during the Biden administration, he got what he wanted, a summit with uh, Biden. Um, Putin is bound and determined not to let Ukraine make its choices as an independent nation, meaning joining NATO eventually, which is not going to happen anytime soon, joining the European Union. So this time it's, you know, only Vladimir Putin knows the betting is he's not going to invade that he, but exactly what he wants is not clear. I mean, he says no NATO membership. Carter, if you read the NATO's plan for 2030, it doesn't envision Ukraine membership. If you talk to anybody from Germany and France, they're not going to admit Ukraine currently because Russia's already essentially won by by this invasion because NATO members are going to be very, very reluctant to you have Article 5 where, where all members are supposed to support a member who is under attack. That would put a lot of European and U.S. military might in defense of, of Ukraine. And I don't think anybody wants that. So they're not going to, that's off the table. What else he wants, it's not really clear to me because he seems to have, just by doing that, he scared away investors, which makes Ukraine weaker and the economy weaker. You know, the currency has been weakening lately. NATO is, they're not even close to NATO. He understands very well Ukraine, well, its army has improved. It is not uh, it is not any match for the Russian army. You sound less w worried about an invasion 
than what the way the situation is being characterized in, say, the New York Times or on the BBC. BBC. The New York Times said uh, this week that if there was going to be a, an invasion, it would come most likely at the end of January. Is is that? Do you think that that's in the cards, or is that maybe a little too hyped up? Uh, well, I'll be in the U.S. by then. <laughs> the good time. Vladimir would hold off. No, I think it's a little hyped up. I'm, you know, I don't know because uh, Putin will do anything. And I think, you know, he wrote uh, five big, huge. He, Ukraine is one of his, his obsessions. And he wrote a long, long piece last summer, basically saying Ukraine and Russia are one in the same country, one in the same people. So this is a a fixation for him. I don't think it's a fixation for the rest of the Russian people. And that's why I don't think that they're going to would support a full out assault. There's so many blood ties and interconnected ties. It would be really, really tragic. But I, I mean, I didn't think he would do what he did in Crimea or continue this eight year war. So I can tell you what I hear. I mean, I was elected to business association, European, uh, Business associations, the largest business association. They met with Zelensky a week ago, and his feeling was that they were not going to deepen their invasion or launch a full scale mass invasion. Um, I hope he's right. I don't see, I just don't see how, what, what would be the benefit to that. But I think. Basically, Putin is emboldened because the West has shown weakness. The sanctions have not deterred Vladimir Putin or really punished him to the extent to change his behavior. And Jake Sullivan, actually another Minnesotan, uh, as a national security advisor, said this time the United States and the Western allies are prepared to uh, impose tough measures that they were not willing to do in 2014. And that's a very key point. How tough they go is going to be a big, big question. How much military support Ukraine can count on is also a big question. But if they're willing to go tougher and they weren't tough in 2014, then I think there's a deterrent for, for Vladimir Putin. That's something that you would support as, as someone living in Ukraine right now and, and something that you think that the United States and Europe should should do and pursue. Oh, I we're hawks on, on, on Russian sanctions. I think they should be kicked out of the SWIFT. A lot of their money is abroad. They enjoy the Western privileges, rule of law, banking. They've really got to... The sanctions have to be much, much tougher uh, and, you know, Germany and the other Europeans helped undermine sanctions by building this pipeline, you know, directly from uh, North, we're talking Nord Stream 2, which would double the capacity of get natural gas that can be sent from Russia directly to Europe via uh, Germany and bypassing Ukraine. So Europe had a hand in weakening this and emboldening Putin and increasing their economic dependence. Russia is a country that's, you know, the West should treat as a rogue regime and reduce its economic uh, ties as much as possible. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what we believe. Trickier is building Russia's uh, or Ukraine's military capacity because if it gets so strong where 
Putin feels that is a you know a real viable military threat or or you know would, would offer up a strong defense. I think he's going to take preemptive action. I don't think Ukraine's military is at that point, but I think that's basically what Putin is trying to prevent. What's the mood like right now? And yeah, you're in Kiev. What's what's the mood like in Kiev and and in Ukraine? Are are people worried about this, or is this just more of kind of what's been going on for the last ten years or so? Uh, a little of both, actually. I mean, everybody's bringing it up today. I mean, every day in daily conversation, will they? Won't they? What's our plan? I mean, the U.S. is talking about contingencies for evacuating American citizens. That's a new one. Uh, so, but some of this is because this is uh, risen to the top in, in the West. Uh, and, and Ukrainians, I mean, uh, I think it's great because it brings into, you know, it, it brings the Ukraine situation to a much greater understanding worldwide. But I think there was a soldier, you know, when new Western reporters are coming to the front line, you know, they've been doing the war for eight years. And so uh, it never ended. I mean, it's great as getting the attention, but the war has been going on for a long time. So people are a bit immune to this. And, and Russia has been trying to test the nerves for eight years and, and kills enough soldiers, you know, on a regular basis in Ukraine to, to keep everybody reminding that they're in the midst of a war. I'm curious about how you made it to Kiev. Uh, you and I both, I think, were born in South Dakota and and spent significant time in Minnesota. And and I'm curious about how you ended up in Kiev and and what the draw of Ukraine is for you. Accidental, but it goes back to the University of Minnesota connection. Uh, I worked at the Minnesota Daily with a woman named Victoria Sloan who went into the Foreign Service and immediately after the breakup of the Soviet Union, for many years later, they had exchange programs. Long story short, she invited me to a journalism exchange program in 1996. Fell in love with Ukraine, the Ukrainian story, everything, the history. Uh, there was a need for an English language newspaper. It existed, exists the Keep Post. I was able to become editor of it and we called ourselves Ukraine's Global Voice. And uh, it was, this is not an English speaking nation at all. And the world is not a Ukrainian speaking nation at all. So there was a real need for English language journalism about Ukraine. And I was happy to do that job for 14 years until recently. So uh, that was it. I mean, I became, you know, the longer you're in another country, the, the more professional and personal ties you build up. And that's the same with me. I was a provincial Midwesterner. I never went left the America until I was 30, I think. Talk to me a little bit about your time at the Kiev Post and what it's like to run a newspaper in another country. Difficult, but very rewarding. I mean, I spent most of my career at the St. Paul Pioneer Press in Minnesota when it was part of the large Knight Ritter newspaper chain that doesn't exist anymore. Every day here, the stories are very, very interesting and very fascinating. And I, I, I and other ex, expatriates, native English speakers, had a role to play because, well, our staff uh, primarily were, were, was Ukrainian, who had a very good knowledge of English and very fluent, but still needed that native touch and needed 
our role was to put things in the Western context. So we had, I mean, we had everything. I, I'm completely unexpected. We've had, you know, economic crises, uh, revolution, war, war, uh, you know, whatever, you name it, we've had it. Uh, every now, every few years, Ukraine would, would become number one in international attention. We got a lot of attention during the Trump impeachment, for instance. Uh, and so it was never, it, the 14 years flew, flew by, Carter, a completely great experience. But, I, you know, it's difficult. It's a poor country, weak advertising climate, not a culture like in the West of where readers w- are inclined to subscribe to their newspapers. So we always had financial challenges, but, you know, we, we've been able to survive. They've been able to survive. They're surviving now without me as the editor. I'm going to take a break now. But uh, I tell you, we've turned out, we were like a journalism school. We turned out journalists who went on to greater careers than I had working at the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Economist, Bloomberg, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, going back to America, working at American newspapers. So I think we, we tried to do journalism the right way. And uh, I think we helped uh, uh, raise people's understanding of, of Ukraine. We certainly can see that from our subscriber database, which included ambassadors and included international journalists and included top members of international organizations. So I feel pretty good about what we did. Make the pitch for why Americans need to be paying attention to what's happening in the Ukraine right now. This is a great story, first of all, on domestic level of whether a former Soviet Republic can become a functioning democracy, reduce corruption, join the democratic world. That's the still in play. What's really at stake now is whether the world is going to allow a hostile foreign power, Russia, to redraw boundaries of independent sovereign nations and get away with it. For almost eight years, Russia has done just that with Ukraine. And uh, that, to me, that cannot be allowed to stand, I think, for most people who really are trying to find a world that is rules-based, that it respects a nation's sovereignty, I think is absolutely important that the Ukrainian struggle, the Ukrainians prevail in this struggle, not just for Ukraine, but for all of Europe and, and, and actually for international law. Well, thank you very much. That was helpful to to get an update on what's happening, you know, from someone who's living in Ukraine right now and what that looks like on the ground. I really appreciate you taking the time. Carter, thanks for having me. I think what was wonderfully surprising about this, um, like you said, it didn't quite go where I was hoping, where, where I was thinking it would go. There was a fantastic history lesson and he took us through the history of the Ukraine and all the occupations and the wars and and, and, and everything that had been happening in the Ukraine. Of course, he spent 14 years there. The surprise for me, actually, the takeaway um, from this conversation was sort of the, the sidebar the stuff, the work that he has done and how 
um, how they've raised awareness, how they've trained top journalists through the, the work that he has done. And I think that piece was, was sort of uh, the sweetener at the end for me, just sort of getting to hear um, what he's done in that role and how how they've trained, I, I guess, a generation or, or, or yeah, certainly a, a, a great number of journalists who I'm assuming are from the Ukraine, who have left the Ukraine and gone on to do really big things. That's really important, Adobe, because one point that he did not make in the conversation that he and I talked about uh, after the conversation, actually, is that in, it was either October or November of last year, the owner fired the entire staff and fired the entire staff after numerous incidents of pressure from outside authorities over their coverage of what was happening in the Ukraine with Russia. And and Brian says he thinks the owner Adnan, I think it's Adnan Kivan maybe, or Kivan, saw them as too much trouble and a little too independent. And so he fired the entire staff and started over with a team that was maybe a little less independent. Now, the fired staff started a new uh, media outlet called the Kiev Independent that is now online. They've got a website. They've got a newsletter. You can find them. If you just Google the Kiev Independent, you'll find them online. They are in dire need of funding. So if you have an interest in that part of the world, interest in supporting journalism and independent reporting in that part of the world, Brian said, that that they could really use some funding. It's an interesting part of the world, and it's been an interesting few months to be a journalist in that part of the world. Wow, that did not go where I thought it was going. <laughs> interesting, surreal shame when you consider. I, obviously, during the conversation, he talked about um, sort of the work they'd done, pretty much setting up a journalism school. Um, that ended up turning out really good journalists and, um, you know, newsletters that were subscribed to by, um, you know, diplomats and ambassadors. So it just seems like such a shame to be going backwards. You know, you've, you, you've groomed this really brilliant um, set of journalists and then um, suddenly they're out of work and uh, what you're getting is more sort of, um, you know, the people who will say what, what, what the powers that be want them to say. So yeah. And I, Shame, but it is. Look out for the Kiev Independent. Yeah, I, I think it's it's literally kievindependent.com, uh, k y i v independent.com, and it's a beautiful looking website. They're they're putting out uh, some quality information. So I was fascinated by that by that conversation because I really just had depended on headlines from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the BBC. Uh, in defining and describing what was happening in that part of the world and had expected, based on those headlines, to hear more concern and worry from Brian. Actually, um, Carter, same here. Um, and in fact, when you were having that conversation, I was literally since early early December, I think those of us who are watching have been expecting an invasion like any day. Um, so it's definitely an interesting space to watch. And if you know much about what's been happening in that part of the world. The, the trend seems to be a lot of noise, um, a lot of threatening, but no decisive action for reasons that Brian had actually discussed. Um, like we don't know what benefit it would be to the Kremlin, for example, to do an all out invasion, considering you know NATO and the community and how close to Europe the Ukraine is. So it's an interesting one to watch, and I don't know. Um, 
I think the Kremlin is quite unpredictable sometimes. So yeah, I, I, any day, maybe not ever. I don't know. The other thing I thought was interesting is just to try to place Ukraine on the map and talk about where it is, because I do think most people around the world probably you know, don't have a great idea of what that geography looks like and and why it's important and and how the geography makes it important. And so I wanted to have that conversation as well. When you also think about the sort of the trauma that that, that region has been through, um, people who know about the Ukraine, um, you know, they had the, I can't remember the name, I think it was called the the Holy Moor, where 7 million people were starved to death. They've lived through the Holocaust, World War II. They've been occupied by both Nazi Germany and this. I mean, it's just a region that has been through so much battery over the decades. My question has always been, why? What's in the Ukraine? Yeah, I don't know. What's special about the Ukraine? What is it about the Ukraine that makes it so appealing to the Soviets, right? Well, part of it is part of it is it's it's huge, it's massive. As we talked about, the border being long, it's the second largest country in Europe after Russia. And then I think, as Brian t- talked about in the conversation, Putin sees that part of Ukraine really as as being not a neutral state, but a part of Russia. I think for me, it begs the question then, if you think about the importance in terms of, in terms of size, um, proximity to the, le- the rest of Europe, um, the fact that it really, if things were normal, it would be invited to NATO, for example. I'm just always fascinated by the why. How is the Kremlin able um, to get away with, you know, with, with the treatment it's dished out on the Ukraine over the decades. Yeah. It's like a place that, you know, the the, the EU, certainly the US and, and the powers that be, it just seems like a region that should be protected more. I yeah. Mean, if you think, you know, what happened in, in 2014, the, the almost revolution that started the current war, there were no sac- sanctions after that. Um, are we hopeful that there would be sanctions now when you consider that what happened in 2014 was, I mean, I mean, that led to war. Yeah, it also was a place that was that was heavily damaged in World War II. And following World War II, there was a famine in the Ukraine, which caused just a whole lot of trauma for folks. And then becoming part of the USSR, the, the Soviet Union, it's, I think what you've got is a country that has always had an identity, but that in most in our most recent history has seen the soviets and the russians really trying to dominate who they are we, we also know that i guess in the early 90s uh when the soviet union broke up they did have i don't know how many years but they did have semi-independence um which of course the soviets t- took back and it was interesting to hear um brian say that the russians generally, Putin certainly, and the Russians generally have never seen Ukraine um, as an independent nation, but always a territory of of Russia, even when they did have that sort of, you know, that brief moment of independence in the early 90s. So I've got a question for you as as someone who has lived in Europe, but uh, and currently lives in in Lagos in Nigeria, and, and as someone who's traveled quite a bit, and has lived in the U.S., is the news that you see in Lagos or the news that you've seen when you lived in Europe, uh, does it have a more global perspective than the news that you've seen when you lived in the U.S.? Yes, certainly. Um, but I don't know if it's that 
the, what's being offered is more global or am I actually actively seeking sort of more global news? So, for example, CNN in Nigeria, which I used to be addicted to, not anymore, <laughs> is very local to U.S. news, actually. So to get a more global sort of view of the world, you know, you, you know, I, I listen to the BBC, um, Voice of America, Reuters. So you kind of have to find it. Um, you don't just switch on your television and, you know, turn on the BBC or, or CNN and, and get global coverage. And do you get coverage in Lagos of what's happening in the Ukraine? Um, we do via CNN. Okay. I think even CNN International's coverage is not as in-depth as what I would find um, maybe reading Reuters, for example, or other independent platforms. Yeah. I tend to, when I want a different perspective, my first place to go is the BBC, which may not be that different, quite frankly, than the American perspective, but but definitely a Eurocentric perspective. And, and then the other day, I actually, uh, DW is a German network and uh, Deutsche World. And so I, I've, I've watched a little bit of that as well. But I've found when I've been in Europe and that in the times that I've traveled, I've found that it very much is a different perspective than the news that we get here in the United States. Definitely. That is true. And interestingly, Al Jazeera, I don't know if you get Al Jazeera, if you watch Al Jazeera. I have seen it online, but I haven't seen it, you know, in kind of any of the main video platforms that we have in the U.S., so we get Al Jazeera, most of Africa, and of course, the Middle East and some parts of Europe, I think. And I find Al Jazeera really broad and really international in the way they cover the news. Ironically, lots of British and American journalists reporting for Al, uh, Al Jazeera, but their their scope and their reaches, I feel a lot more global than what I would find on, on CNN, for example. So it's interesting. We've talked, this is a complete sidebar conversation. We talk about music and how how um, you know platforms like Spotify and and all the different platforms make music so local almost um, you know people like I think you once talked about your son um, finding 1970s Nigerian jazz yeah for example. yeah but it, it's interesting that as as technology has evolved and as many options as we have I find as a big consumer of international news I think the opposite is happening in the news industry where it's not as global and it's not as easy to access very broad international news. News is still very local, actually. And people don't, that's that's a fascinating point. People don't necessarily yeah. seek out news the way they seek out music. Because in, at least in the United States, we have divided ourselves in largely searching for partisan news sources. That's really interesting. I I'd, I'd never thought about it in that in that comparison comparative context with music. Maybe because news doesn't feel as good as music. That's right. No, that's exactly right. I'm sure that's right. Uh, Jenny Grouse, who was on the podcast a few months ago, sent a link to an Indian musical group, two sisters from India that she had obsessed with for a week or so. And then that led me to get obsessed with them for a week or so as well. It's that same, you know, sharing of music from India that we don't necessarily always share news in that same way or st the stories that are generated on the news in that same way. 
So coming back, um, I love music, but coming back uh, to the subject of this podcast and, and news in the, uh, the coming out of the Ukraine, um, I think you asked a really important question close to the end of the of the interview. And, and the question you asked was, why should people pay attention? So, you know, the average American that I've spoken to has no idea what's going on or, or why it's important. Um, and the two things that Brian said that really struck me was he said, well, People should pay attention because this is a great experiment to find out if a former Soviet Republic could actually become a full democratically functioning sovereign nation. This is a real test of, of the possibility of that happening. Um, and then second, um, he said, will the world allow another nation, Russia, to just redraw boundaries of independent nations in the 21st century and can can the world sit back and allow that to happen? And I thought those were two really interesting points that he made when you asked the question about why should we care? Yeah, I think we're at a point, especially in the United States and friends that I have that live elsewhere, uh, reflect this back as well. We're at a point now where it feels like it's a critical time for democracy around the world. Uh, and if feels that way in part because of what's been happening in the United States and the threats to our democracy here in the United States. And as I listened to Brian answer that question, what I was thinking is we need to stand up for democracy in the Ukraine just as we're standing up for democracy here in the United States and we're standing up for democracy in other countries around the world. Uh, I think our history from a U.S. perspective has not always been to stand up for democracy. And it's really important that we do so now. I fully agree, Carter. And I'm going to be a little bit provocative with my next statement. So I think as Americans, we typically say that we stand up for democracy and, 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 and the U.S. has gone in uninvited or not to help the cause of democracy. Um, do you as an American feel that sometimes um, maybe we need to be invited to the table before imposing democracy on others. I think that we should, whenever possible, be invited to the table. I think it's using the table analogy, you know, it's much more polite to show up at someone's table uh, after an invitation than, than to show up unannounced. The U.S. often has, in our history, has come to tables around the world that we haven't been invited to. And even times when we've said we're going to be there in the name of democracy, we haven't always been there in the name of democracy. It's always in the name of protecting a U.S. interest, and that hasn't always aligned with democracy. Um, and so it, it hasn't always been an honest approach to foreign relations. And you can look at the history of the U.S. and Central America especially, and, and it's a, a pretty sordid history. And I think one of the things that is helpful with the Ukraine is that is that Ukraine has asked for our assistance and we've been providing assistance. We just, there was a report uh, actually in the Kiev Independent on the military assistance that the Ukraine has received from the United States, the uh, UK, Lithuania, and Latvia. And I think those types of relationships are much more powerful than when we show up 
without invitation. One the perspective on that, I, I completely agree. Well, that was fascinating. And I think it's, you know, really our first attempt to dive into current events. We're going to shift gears uh, on the next episode of the podcast and go back to music. And we're going to talk about Frank Sinatra. And Adobe, I don't know if you're a Rat Pack fan uh, at all, but but we'll spend an episode of the podcast talking about the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra. Looking forward. It should be fun. Our guest, Ingar Christiansen, who is the front man for the Sinatra Songbook, a band out of Oslo, Norway. The Key and the Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for the Key and the Kite is written and performed by the A.V. Grouse Band. The first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Telltale Heart, debuted at number 7 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.